Welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Montarulo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's happening? Uh, just, you know, following the news, the massacre, genocide of uh, Kurdish people by Turkey. Kind of depressing. Um, we're releasing this podcast so. on a Monday, uh, but we're recording it on the previous Thursday. So as of right now, uh, things are looking pretty bad there in uh, Rojava. Uh, hopefully, by the time you're hearing this on a Monday or shortly after, things will have stopped. Hoping for a ceasefire, um, but yeah. So that that that's you know obviously not what we're here to talk about. But uh, if you're listening to this because you like films, you should also check out our political podcast, Move Left Idiots, where we talk about politics from a socialist yeah. perspective. And we talked about that for like 40 minutes on Thursday. So go check that out. That's we really get in 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 depth on on the different uh kind of angles of that 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 story. Politicking. In <laughs> or in Syria rather with Turkey. <laughs> yeah, but uh you know that's not what we're here for today. Today we are here to talk about the um absolutely excellent 2016 best picture uh winning film. Of course we're talking about La La Land. Uh, the film by David <laughs> uh, hey, nope, you know, just Hollywood loves movies about itself. So La <laughs> La Land, best picture winner, 2017. <laughs> nope. So no, we're actually here to talk about the actual movie that won best picture uh, in, in 2016. That's uh, Barry Jenkins film Moonlight. Um, yeah. So uh, just as a little bit of a background, I, you know, I didn't see this movie when it came out. I actually just watched it recently for the first time. Uh, yeah, I, I was blown I away to, by I it. I had to force Fiji on this one a little bit. No, <laughs> I, I'd encouraged you to, to watch it because it is such an. Yeah, I, I had meant to for a while. I just hadn't gotten around, but yeah. but I'm glad I did because it was uh, incredible film, and we'll we'll get into the different uh, things about it. But uh, you know, the fact that it won an Oscar and that it won Best Picture Oscar is no small feat. Um, there's a lot of, uh, unprecedented things about this film and, and really just not typical Oscar fare in, in any way, shape or form. Um, you know, the Oscars for as much as they pretend to be woke and as much as they pretend to be, you know, modern, they're just a bunch of old fucking stuffy white guys. Like they're a bunch of old stuffy white liberals who actually, don't give a fuck about representation as long as they can pretend that they um, are woke when, you know, and of course they're really not. So it was kind of a minor miracle that this movie won best picture. Um, but you know, well, you, let's you talk remember, about the, f- yeah. 
you just 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 to give you sort of context, was it 2006 when they couldn't stomach voting for uh, Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture when it was clearly oh God, the best yeah. picture of the year? They picked some fucking bullshit movie about car accidents and how it brings us all together is the best picture. And people were just like, that's some bullshit. Right. So to your yep. point, even though Hollywood is very liberal, the people that actually vote on this are the old white guys. Uh, yeah. who, who by and large are probably not going to like a film where they don't see a single white person. Uh, and the story is essentially centered around somebody who is gay and is also not white. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's something that they'll claim to, to be super in support of, but it probably makes most Oscar voters really uncomfortable. So that's a really, uh, that, that's more to its credit that it managed to break through that kind of, barrier where you know and it was up against a, a powerhouse of a of an oscar contender and I, I don't say that meaning the movie was a powerhouse but uh la la land was like tailor made like they should have just not even shown it in theaters just ship the fucking screeners out to the academy voters like you know straight away like it was such a fucking oscar bait movie oh, and it's yeah. not a it's, it, it's not a bad no. movie but it's not a fucking it's best good. picture movie it's, it's i mean you know, I, I don't like musicals at all, yeah. right? So when I heard, oh, La Land's a musical about Hollywood, modern musical about Hollywood, I was just kind of like... It was okay. way better than it had any right to be. Well, okay, so to, to speak to that real quick, yeah, the opening no, scene is this dance number that takes place in this elevated, you know, on this elevated freeway, uh, gridlock yeah. traffic, and you're watching it, and after four minutes, you realize they haven't cut the, can- they haven't cut the shot once. Yeah. And they're actually on that freeway performing this. And you're like, oh, this is actually technically marvelous. So Damien Chazelle is yeah. actually a very, very good director. I mean, he's, you yeah. know, he, he did Whiplash, which is an incredible fucking film. If people haven't seen it, it's a movie about um, basically this kid, this drummer who wants to be part of this really uh, elite touring uh, orchestra, you know, like he, he's, he, yeah. Uh, and J.K. Simmons is this maniac fucking instructor who who is like you know like throwing symbols and is like you know it, it's a it's an incredible film about like person it's just really an incredible sure. uh, piece of cinema but we're not well, here to talk about I, him. I only mentioned um, this because La La Land was a film that won me over what I didn't expect it to and no it was very, it was, it was Hollywood good, but loves movies about itself. I think we all thought that La La Land really was going to get the best picture award, even though moonlight is a vastly superior work of cinema. Yeah. Um, and so we should maybe just talk about the, the joke there. Cause for anyone who didn't watch the Academy Awards or didn't hear about this, <laughs> there was a huge fuck up at the Oscars, which is one of the most scripted orchestrated, uh, spectacles in, in all of TV dumb. Right. Yeah. And they, the, and of the, all the awards to fuck up. <laughs> The best picture award, the very last one, is, <laughs> the award, like yeah, the coveted so the, fucking best picture. The company, whatever the the company, some like you know, accounting firm, yeah, accounting firm. Who even anyway, they fucked up the cue cards or the the you know the the envelopes they open up the and pull the yeah. thing out. So it literally it was like it was the wrong category, but the right poor Warren Beatty, <laughs> Warren Beatty. Uh, they read it as La La Land was the best picture. And it was like, they all went up on stage and the producers of La La Land were in the middle of their acceptance speech. And then I, I forget which person it was that cut in said, I, I'm very sorry, but it, it's not. It was, it's, it's, to his cre- 
I was gonna say to his credit, it was actually one of the producers of La La Land. He kind of saw the 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 conversation going behind them, where where the accountants came out and they were talking with everyone. It was like, what the fuck happened? And then they were trying to figure out what happened. And I guess he grabbed the right envelope because he realized the mix up. And he's like, no, guys, guys, we didn't win Moonlight. And he held up, you know, the Moonlight Best Picture envelope. Uh, and people thought he was joking at first, but like he, yeah, you know, he was like, no. No, they they fucked up the the you know award. So, so yeah, biggest fuck up in Oscar history, but like also the most poetically like poetic oh, symbolistic <laughs> that that the the, the 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 really super white Hollywood movie. Uh, you know, I mean, John Legend is in La La Land purely to be like the magic Negro to the white character, you know, and bestow yeah. his wisdom upon Ryan Gosling, who, you know, to the white character saves jazz. Or- say, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, for Moonlight, a movie with not a single black or single white person in it to then literally be able to, to take the Oscar out of the hands of the, the white oh. movie was just, <laughs> just like, that's so much Chef's better kiss. than if they had not fucked up in the first place. This makes it a yep. much more, you know, amazing moment. Uh, yeah, for, for me absolutely. anyway, and I'm sure for other people. Yeah, and I think yeah, and I think La La Land actually unfortunately suffered because of that perception because it actually was on its own a good movie, just not nearly as good as Moonlight. Uh, no. And we'll we'll talk about and let's talk about why uh, Moonlight is so good because, um, you know, this is a movie from a director I was not really familiar with. He hadn't done a ton of big uh, films before this. Yeah, only second. Yeah, it's only a second film, and I don't think his first film was was you know super wide uh, release. And uh, it, the amount uh, of uh, just cinematography and 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 just the feel of this movie uh, is kind of incredible, especially when you consider the budget for this movie, which you said was one point five million, I believe, right? Which is the lowest, yes. uh, the lowest uh, Oscar winner for Best Picture ever. Uh, the the only thing that comes close yeah. was was uh, Rocky, made for one point one million, but inflation adjusted, this would be like a quarter of that, uh, it, by comparison. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, and it, and it just and the look of this movie is not like cheap. Like it's not you know it, the 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 just the use of colors and just the incredible visuals of this film uh, for a movie that ostensibly not a lot happens in terms of action. Uh, it, it's kind of incredible. Like, cause you, you come away from it being like, wow, that was a real fucking experience. And then you think about like what, what actually happened in this movie? Not a hell of a lot. It's really just a very, very, uh, little. very subtle muted character study uh, of this of this incredibly yeah dense character who who doesn't talk a lot at all i mean almost everything is kind of unsaid in this movie like there's so much more in what's unsaid in this film than what's actually there's so, there's so the many moments where the, the photography the film and i say photography not cinematography because the camera so rarely moves almost all the action is, is taking place within yeah that's a good point a, yeah. a lockdown frame uh, you know, just, just amazing shallow depth of field, amazing use of color. This this movie was actually um, based on a uh, play that was never produced called, uh, I forget the exact name of it, like a black boy's skin looks blue in moonlight was the name of the play. Yeah, And you, like you see that so many times where, you know, all skin reflects light, right? But different mm-hmm. complexions reflect different kinds of light. 
and you know so often you you're shooting people with very dark black skin you gotta you gotta open up that shutter and shoot really bright otherwise it reads totally black well if you're doing your job as a photographer skin should never look totally white or totally black it should be reflecting sources of light around it and this film does that masterfully yeah absolutely um and you know just in general like i so the film, the reason it's set in in Miami during the height of the kind of war on drugs was, you know, obviously to tell the story of these characters, all of whom have had their lives affected by by drugs and by the war on drugs. But um, Barry Jenkins and the writer of the film, whose name I don't have in front of me at the moment, uh, both grew up in in Liberty City, which is this extremely. So, uh, yeah, he was one of the writers. There was someone else who co-wrote with him. Um, yeah. But it, but they I believe they both grew up in in Miami yeah. in Liberty City yes. in this in this extremely poor uh, neighborhood that was riddled with drugs when you know obviously later we found out the CIA was pumping drugs into all of these black communities to fucking further destabilize them and further keep them in poverty and keep them redlined. Um, but and that's I think kind of the incredible thing that the film does very subtly where they never really talk about any kind of larger implications of anything, but it really says a lot without saying it in this film. Like when you really look at the way that, uh, Chiron's mother is, you know, it, 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 it takes a lot of stereotypes that people had about black people in the eighties. And it kind of says like, well, you know, it, this is why, like, this is, you know, like it's, I just think there's a lot of unsaid subtext to this film sure. and that's kind of like the strength of it. Well, and, and we see that there's this boy who's very isolated, whose mother is addicted to, to crack. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we see this, you know, stranger notices him being, uh, you know, bullied or chased by other kids and goes and, and, uh, you know, breaks him out of this vacant apartment building, takes him out to eat. Kid barely talks, you know, and you get the sense that he knows this kid or he knows whose kid this is. And then we find out that, you know, this is the guy who's selling the crack to <laughs> this kid's mother. And it is a big part of the reason why this kid's life is, is fucked up. You know, that he has this abusive mother as a, for a parent. And, you know, probably my favorite scene, one of the scenes that just like rocks you emotionally is the, the orange juice scene, as a lot of people refer to it. Um, you know, where the kid really starts to, you know, when, when you've got three different sections of the movie, right. For anyone who has, you know, understands that little Chiron and black are the three different names that he has at different periods of his time. And it's the last scene that he is little when he's first becoming self-aware that he might be gay. Uh, and he asks, you know, his his surrogate father, Juan, uh, played by, uh, Yes, uh, phenomenal yeah, performance for which movie. he won an Oscar for only being in the film for 20 minutes. Uh, and, and he says, yeah, I, do you sell drugs? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And he says, you know, do you... Well, he doesn't actually say, did you sell drugs to my mom? He says like two different questions and then he, he gets the answer he's looking for and he get up, gets up and walks away. And you know mm-hmm. that he's made the connection. Yeah, You know, that he, he understands that you know, his life is fucked up in part because of this person who's trying to help him out now. And yeah. that's just part of the game. If you're a drug dealer, you can't, you're not going to say no to someone buying drugs, even if you know they're an addict and you know that they're fucking their kid's life up. Right. But he's he's got enough guilt that he's trying to help this kid. 
Uh, and then a strange choice that we never see that character again. Yeah. I mean, and it's incredible. Like he's just, and he, you know, they briefly just kind of make allusions to the fact that like, Oh, well, you know, I haven't seen her since the funeral or whatever. And you assume, cause he's, you know, uh, uh, his, his wife is, is fairly young when, when, uh, Sharon is a teenager that, you know, he was probably gunned down or, you know, it, because he's a fucking crack dealer. Like I'm sure he didn't die of natural causes at 40 years old. You know? Right. So, right. um, but, but he, yeah, I mean, let's talk about his performance real quick. Cause his performance in just an incredibly small amount of screen time is just so captivating that I, I really forgot he was only in the movie for probably like 15, 20 minutes of screen time. But like, he's mm-hmm. just such a magnetic figure when he's on the screen. I mean, that scene where he's teaching, young Sharon had a swim in the ocean is just like this incredible, beautiful scene. Um, and you know, funnily enough, I was reading trivia about the film. Uh, Marshall Ali was actually teaching that actor how to swim because he didn't know how to swim. Yeah. So like in that scene, he literally was oh, teaching yeah. him how to swim just yeah. added to the moment. This film, the way it shot and a lot of the, the decisions about where to put the camera, uh, it, you sometimes feel like you're watching a documentary Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, it's got that feel to it. There's other times where the camera's so deliberately placed that it, it, it almost takes you out of the, the moment. Uh, a couple times where the characters are looking directly into the lens, right? Where it's suddenly like you feel yeah. almost like it's like they're the characters had an out of body experience. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that is, that is definitely an amazing scene. Also, you know, in that orange juice uh, dinner table scene, yeah. when, you know, this is one of the things that when, when you realize what kind of film this is, um, you know, when little nine years old asks, what's a faggot? And you realize this kid's been teased well beyond what we've actually seen on screen. And, you know, the, the answer that one gives him is maybe like the most amazing uh, answer that an adult could give a kid, especially in a community where you know that, uh, you know, especially for such a young kid to ask a question like that, to get a very like progressive, uh, compassionate answer, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's, he says that's a word that people use to make gay people feel bad, and then this nine-year-old boy says, "Am I gay?" And you know, he says, "I don't know." He says, "Well, well he also well, says to him, uh, you know, like he's like." He says, like, am I a faggot? And he's like, look, you, you could be gay, but don't never let no kid call you a fucking faggot or something right, like that. Right. He's like, sticking really, up for him. He, he's yeah. confirming that it's okay if he was, and he doesn't even know. And he's like, you know, if you are, you'll know. You'll just know. It's something that only you will know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's just like, you you know that, that Barry Jenkins wrote this as like, here's the way you should talk to a kid about this. Not the mm-hmm. way that probably almost every kid is. <laughs> yeah, I was... Like, just imagine how many kids got their ass beat for asking those questions growing up. And, that, in, but that's, in, and that's why it was such like a kind of beautiful moment. It's like this is what you could and should do as a parent when a kid comes to you with it with, right. with something like this. And it was really right. It, it, um, but, the, you know, you know, it felt real because, you know, this is already a guy who has compassion for the kid purely because he knows like, yeah, I'm a drug dealer and I got his mom all strung out on crack and I feel bad about it. You know, and I'm trying to help this kid seeing the harm that I've done. So yeah. when he when he says that, you you believe that it's coming from a real place, f- 
for from who the character is, not as like a preachy, like, hey, let's, you know, here's how it should be kind of a place. Yeah. I also love uh, Janelle Monet's performance in that scene. Janelle Monet plays Teresa, which is his wife. I think it was his wife, right? Like they, they wife or girlfriend. I don't remember what yeah. they, what they, they I don't was, think they but. specified, but Teresa, she's great in this whole movie, but I, she was really great in that scene. Cause you could tell she was very much like, like, like silently coaching him during that scene, you know, like, like he, he like looked at her at one point and she was like shaking her head. Cause he, he was going to give an answer that would have been kind of like a dumb guy answer. Right. Yeah. They're she just was, really subtle little things. I really enjoyed about her performance in that scene. It's such an amazing scene. Anytime you have a, like a, a, essentially a child actor working with adults and it comes off that realistic, it just blows mm-hmm. me away. Um, another example, the, the, I don't remember her name at the moment, the young girl who's in the uh, movie Logan acting with uh, Hugh Jackman, the scene mm-hmm. where she starts to talk is just like mind blowingly good acting from a child. And yeah, you gotta have incredible. a, you gotta have great adult actors to know how to you know react with them. Uh, and just the fact that, that Juan's character talks to him like an adult <clears throat> is amazing too. Cause it's like the last time you, you don't see his own mother doesn't talk to him like an adult. Uh, the principal doesn't talk to him like an adult. You know, like nobody yeah. else talks to him like like an adult, except for, uh, you know, the um, the guy he has a relationship with, obviously, um, although it's still kind of like a, you know, adolescent kind of, you know, punching the ribs kind of a way of talking. Uh, and, and then his his surrogate parents, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, briefly, I wanted because you talked about, you know, the kind of the, the, the moonlight and the beach scene. I wanted to talk about just the kind of the setting of this film, because. You know, obviously, uh, Barry Jenkins said it in Miami because that's where he grew up. But he also, you know, it it, it made for an incredible backdrop because it it really showed this kind of whole notion of like, you know, people think of all these like luxury resort destinations like, you know, Miami or Los Angeles. But for people living in these poverty stricken and like drug adult communities because of you know systematic racism and systematic oppression and like we talked about literally the cia fucking pumping drugs into the into the inner cities it's like it's this it's this incredible juxtaposition where it's like you're surrounded by the most beautiful scenery you can possibly imagine these amazing sunsets across this beautiful like blue ocean and then you walk five feet and you're you know in, in in a fucking crack house and it's like this really incredible kind of uh typically when 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 movies and films depict uh like inner cities you you just you think of like baltimore and the wire and like just really dreadful dreary places but it's just incredible to see you know uh a little like hop on the fucking subway and and take a tr- and take a train to Miami Beach and just be on in this like in, on this amazing uh you know kind of beach with this beautiful scenery and all these like that cool like you know uh ocean avenue uh backdrop behind him with all like the pink and purple and like turquoise buildings with yeah, all the, there, there were a lot of trip. very deliberate choices to show a lot of the environment in this film to mm-hmm. make it feel like Miami so you didn't feel like it could be any other place uh and, and i love movies that do that 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 make the place yeah, part of the, the character of the film to your point though yeah like if you've been to hawaii or you've been to puerto rico i've been to both um yeah 
it's it's strange to see just absolute abject poverty people living in like literal shacks with no roofs in the middle of a tropical paradise because mm-hmm. you, you kind of realize like you you kind of don't need it <laughs> like you know it's it's warm all the time right so you don't you don't you know you can live in a pretty uh you know very cheap home not that you want to live without a roof on your head obviously uh and it's just like okay yeah i might have a car up on blocks in the front yard uh and i'm living in a ramshackle cement block house but like literally i can walk 10 feet and there's a fucking tropical rainforest right mm-hmm. um not that yeah. that's the point of this film at all but uh yeah it is it is a very uh it is an interesting visual juxtaposition because we are so used to seeing poverty as like south side chicago or all of Baltimore, you know, yeah. uh, as like the, the pinnacle of the, you know, crime ridden drug, whatever, uh, in, in this film to, to have it in shot in Miami, um, as Miami, you know, so often in movies, they, they shoot it wherever it's convenient and then just call it another city and they get some pickup yeah. shots from like the B unit that actually flew out <clears throat> to get like, you know, the, the, the skyline of the movie they're pretending they actually shot it in. Uh, you know, just, just tons of movies are shot that way. Um, one example was David Fincher's seven. They shot all of that in LA and yet it's in a city that is never named, but can't possibly exist because you look at the buildings and how much it rains. And then all of a sudden they drive out to the country and they're in the fucking California desert. It's like, wait, where, where, where did they come from? <laughs> <laughs> this city can't yep. possibly exist. Uh, but they, yeah, they just, they found a bunch of buildings in LA that had never been shot before. And we're like, Oh, that doesn't look like LA. Cause we never shown it in another movie. Uh, and then we'll just get a shitload of ring towers. So people think it's like fucking New York, but it's not. <laughs> so weird choices from Fincher on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, just, just so there's so many shots where you see a very narrow depth of field in moonlight and then other shots where you see forever. Uh, where you can see, you know, a, a, when they're when they're playing football or soccer, whichever one it was, is when these still little, uh, and there's that train going by in the background, and you hear it and you see it and you're aware of it. Um, just shots where they're looking down a street, and you can see every palm tree for miles looking down a street uh, in, in in some of these shots. Or when he's walking down the street and he gets not exactly jacked but harassed by the bullies, right? And he's just walking down the middle of the street and there's bike lanes and then just you see these beautiful uh you know like row houses painted yellow on either side. You know, as a as a location scout, you're looking for places like that, that that are just like, wow, that that's an amazing background that doesn't look like anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, that beach uh is the site of uh his first uh it, you know, experience with Kevin, who's like his classmate um at school so that uh i I really like the way that they broke this into the three kind of chapters the three you know stages of chiron's life and like a good chunk of it was taken up by the first you know iteration of him um but so it's just i i really found it interesting um that you know it went once they move on to the teenage chiron and he's you know, still friends with, um, Kevin. And then they have this experience on the beach and then, uh, at school, you, you can just this, say hand job. I mean, we, you can just say, <laughs> it's not like it's a weird, well, thing. it was implied. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, but so it, it, 
the movie doesn't it, when I was talking about like the subtleness of of the kind of themes of this movie and what it's trying to say it really talks about how the system fails kids in, in these inner cities because like you know Sharon's getting bullied by this dude um who's just like a just like a really over-the-top cartoon fucking bully like he's just walking around just like shoulder bumping into everybody like i've never seen a bully be that like over the top in real life but oh I for the have. purpose of the movie i'm sure i'm, I'm, I'm sure so there are some people sure. they were i mean not in high school because by high school i knew how to fucking That's what i was thinking yeah. deal with fuckers like that but when i was in middle school like i, I lived Maybe. out in the country yeah. so i went from you know you go from fifth grade where your top dog Right. And you're, you're not I didn't yeah. pick on kids younger than me. I only picked on people my own age if they were fucking with me. Then you go to middle school and all of a sudden I didn't have a single class with anyone I went to elementary school with. And there was some fucking just terrible bullies in middle school um, that it, like yeah. everyone, everyone no, in my class sure. in, in grade school, we all got along with each other. I'd never experienced bullies until I got to middle school. And man, like once they figure out a thing about you to exploit, they will do mm. it every fucking day. A real bully that really wants to terrorize you and and gets a thrill out of it. I thought that bully character, like once that guy knew that, that you know that Chiron was gay, you would just humiliate that kid, right? And yeah, yeah. No, that know, part was true to life for sure. I just meant like when he was literally walking around the schoolyard, bumping into like everybody. Imagine it was like, did we get it? He's a fucking bully. We get it. But no, he. But that that psychological sure. breakdown of Chiron by him and i don't remember his name his character but that psychological breakdown was very true to life and i've you know i'm sure we i've you said you've experienced i've ex- I experienced that in middle school too like there was like i had like two kids that would just fucking fuck with me constantly and like jump me when i was walking home from school i'm like and it's like you when you see this in movies if you haven't experienced it you might be like i don't understand why one person would do that but i and I couldn't explain you why that person would do that either. Because they're deeply that, insecure and they're compensating yeah. for it. They're trying to compensate for a combination of insecurity and abuse they've suffered themselves. That's all it is. Yeah, um, for sure. And, Almost always is somebody from the yeah, abusive family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, especially in, in poor communities, you have way more physical abuse. Um, but yeah, it, it's the when he goes and he talks to Kevin... And he's like, hey, man, you know, I'm, I, I need you to do something for me. I'm, I'm going to point somebody out to you. and I need you to drop them. I need you to fight them. I need you to hit them. Yeah. You know, like we, we know what the setup is, but Kevin, yeah, does, apparently he's just trying to be like, oh, yeah, of course. And you wonder, like, did the bully hear something? Because he clearly mm-hmm. knows that, like this is going to psychologically fuck up both of them. You know, and mm-hmm. d- does he know that they, you know, were, you know, doing a whole fucking, you know, uh, skiing incident on the beach together or, or did he hear something else or he might know. just know that they're friends. Cause they were, they, they like are friendly to each other at school. So he might right. just be like, oh yeah, well he's friends with him. Let's, I'm going to fucking hurt him psychologically by right. having his only friend kick which, the fucking shit out of him. Which is a very Nazi thing to do. It's like, yeah. oh, we're going to have, we're going to have the, you hurt your loved one rather than do it in front of you even, which is just, just like, God the fucking worst yeah um no it really is and then um, there's a, of course the scene with the principal and it's like if you don't press charges then we can't do anything to stop this and he's like you know he breaks down crying because he knows like that that's not going to solve anything for him no they'll right? just get the shit kicked out of him worse every fucking day if i right. buy that guy's cronies he's, he's going to be labeled a snitch and a rat yeah. right and there's nothing worse than that because you know you go from being the the kid you get picked on to being a fucking snitch 
in in that community. Like you'll never get rid of that fucking handle. Uh, and, yeah. and I'm almost, you know, almost seems implausible that the principal doesn't understand that dynamic uh, in, yeah. in that setting. But, but but I'm sure that happens all the time. That that like you know like I'm sure that sure. that happens where the kids get put in that unwinnable situation. And that's what I mean by like why real and this happens in real life. Why kids in inner cities and in really poor communities get totally fucking failed by the school system who see no other option to to dealing with these situations other than to police them and treat these kids like they're in a fucking prison because you know uh yeah the only and that's sorry that's sort of what makes this decision ironic is that it's almost like he knows like he sees a better path for him if he goes to jail than staying in that school right and and the scene where he's got his face in the sink full of ice water and they they're they're uh, over cranking it to to play it basically slow motion you can see like the the flicker of the fluorescent light and he pulls his face up out of that ice water and you it's like mm-hmm. he you can see he's made a decision to become a different person and then the next yeah. scene is him walking back into the school going through door after door after door to get to his classroom and the way he's walking is totally different it's it's like mm-hmm. he's decided to put on armor, right? And he's gonna he's about to do something. You know he's about to do something. And he walks into that classroom and he sits, you know, where you think he's going to his desk, and he picks up that fucking chair and busts it over the back of that bully and then keeps yeah. beating him with the fucking with the, the you know, with the wood of that chair. And it takes four people to hold him back. And this is a kid yeah. that hasn't lifted a finger to defend himself before. It's like, okay. Incredibly he, meek the entire movie. Yeah. He, he's made a decision. Uh, he's going to become something totally different. He's going to become somebody who nobody's ever going to fuck with. But it, it costs him his humanity in that he can't open up to anyone after that. If not yeah. for you know at least 10 years. Um, that we see. Well, well, I mean, like, so they, they almost fucking killed when, when, when they j- jumped him after Kevin punched him and, you know, the, the rest of them just swarmed in and just beat the, fu- they almost fucking killed the kid. I mean, he was, you know, within an inch of his life. Um, and I think at that moment he realized like, look, he's, he's, he's gay. He's small. Like he's the only way he's going to survive is if he turns himself into a fucking killer like you know like and and so he in that moment he stops being Sharon and becomes black which is the third chapter of the of the film and that was the nickname that kevin gave him and he's like don't call me that i don't like that like before that scene like earlier in the in the film um but that's what he basically started going by like his license plate in the third chapter was like black 305 or whatever the area code for yeah miami is Um, and, and so that's, and that moment he, that's, it it wasn't that he snapped. He just realized what he had to do to survive as like a gay black guy in, in Miami in the, in the nineties or in the eighties, whenever, you know, he's like, yeah, I I mean, he, he, I don't think he, you know, it wasn't like, here's how I can still be a gay person. It was like, here's how I can not get killed. I have to, that's what I mean. Like how I can survive, like literally survive, uh, you know, drive a a big car with rims, carry a gun, got the gold grill, you know, gold chain. Like I have to become something I'm not, uh, to, to, to not get destroyed by everything around me. Uh, and it's really fucking sad because you see this guy who, you know, I mean, the guy's ripped. His guy's got a fucking eight pack basically. And he's alone every night. Wakes up every day. You know, it's not who he wants to be. Yeah. No, 
No, it's just that he he's terrified of, of, of you know projecting any display of homosexuality because he think it's he thinks it's going to get him killed, and it very it might well would, uh, yeah. in the world that we're shown in this film. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that'll, that kind of brings us into the third chapter, which is, you know, really short, but just an incredible, um, uh, they do an incredible amount with a really small amount of, of, of screen time, a lot and very little dialogue, but yeah, we, we, we meet, you know, uh, Chiron, uh, after he's, you know, been released from jail and he's like this fucking drug kingpin, um, in, in his neighborhood and it, but a subtle little touch, by the way, his, you see on his dashboard, he had that little like crown, which was, uh, what Juan had on the dashboard of his car. I thought that was just kind of a nice oh, little, yeah, the, nod the, the, to, the like, crown air freshener. Yeah. And that's, who, and that's who he becomes or not even, it's not even air fresh. I think it's like a little, really? I thought those were air it's fresheners. Some, it's, I, it's some Jesus shit. I don't know. <laughs> like a lot of cab drivers <laughs> in the eighties used to have it, but really, you know, it's like a Jesus yeah, okay. is King thing, but like, but regardless. So yeah, yeah pull so a little air fresher, um, pack it in there and little, no, no, it's not. I, I thought probably that's could. Word. I don't drive a car, so I don't know the shit. You used but, to see those in tandem with like the little <laughs> pine air fresheners that smell like shit that everyone would put in their cars. Like for some reason, um, but, but yeah, but so like in, it, he became one because that's like the, the ideal, you know, f- male figure that he's had in his life, and and he kind of chooses to kind of adopt well, that persona to. Protect I don't even know if it's the ideal; it's just the only one he had. Well, was the only, awesome. yeah, I, I, yeah, the the only male fucking like, you know, authority figure he had in his life that treated right. him like a fucking person. Um, so he 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 kind of adopts that, and you know, we see him, and he's like really not at all like the Chiron that you remember. You know, no, the, there's the scene where he, um, the scene with a younger guy who's going around collecting money uh, from the drug deals, and he like fucks with the kid and makes him think he's gonna like harm him for not counting the money right, and then he has him yeah. recount it, and it was all for nothing. It was like, what was the point of d- doing that, other than just to kind of like scare this kid, right? And you're just kind of like, what? It's, why is he doing this? It's behavior you see in movies from like villains who are like who like fuck with like people and then they're like, oh, I'm just kidding. Right before they fucking like beat the shit out of them for their own amusement. You know, it's like a very typical stereotypical like dickhead in a movie move. Um, And he doesn't beat him up afterwards. But it's but it's also very like it it was just an immediate like this is not the same, you know, kid, at least outwardly. that He's adopted some level of, of bullying behavior just as a as a defensive mechanism for anyone that he's mm-hmm. around as a reflex. Uh, yeah. So interesting point. I think you probably read all the IMDb trivia that I did, but none of the three actors who played this character met each other or were allowed to meet each other because they wanted each actor, nine-year-old, teenager, 20-something, uh, to, to completely do their own version of the character. Uh, which you think would almost be counterintuitive that it's, it wouldn't feel consistent. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, because of great writing, <laughs> I think it, it, uh, it definitely does because this, this is a character that's in transition, a good deal of transition in a very you know short movie. It's only an hour and 50 minutes. Um, so I, it, you know, it, it really, I think it really pays off that we see, a very, very different per- version of the same person 
with these three actors. I usually hate stuff like this. Usually feels gimmicky to me, or like that that mm-hmm. uh, the movie where they shot the the same actors over the Boyhood, course of twenty yeah. years. Yeah, and I, I haven't watched that, so I shouldn't judge. But I heard a lot of people say like, eh, they just did it as a gimmick. There's the movie's not that good actually. Did it because they could, yeah. Right, right. So when I heard like, oh, three different actors playing the same character over different points of life, I was kind of like, nah, I don't really see that being a a selling point for me. Um, so you know, to my own ignorance, uh, it, it it really works in this movie. It, it and and not having them, you know, as actors all plan together what they were going to do, uh, makes it so much more enriching. Um, mm-hmm. To see, you know, just how different of a person uh, th- this one young man becomes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, from there we kind of get to the end of the film um, where uh, Chiron uh, goes to see Kevin, who I guess had how did it go kevin calls him and leaves him a message or basically well he's lived in atlanta chiron's been living in atlanta i presume to get away from whatever bullshit was in miami whether it was his bully or whatever uh and yeah kevin just calls him out of the blue and uh which is kind of weird because like you would presume that he must have had to you know either it's not like he still had the same phone number you know, if we're well, he asked it. Teresa, he said, for his phone number. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I know he, he did say the ass. So she, for she phone number. presumably stays in touch with him because she's basically his mother. She was way more of a mother to him than, than his actual mother uh, right, in right. the movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, that's another sort of aspect of this film that, that uh, didn't get talked about a lot is just the idea of like urban loneliness, that you can be in a city, whether it's Miami uh, or Atlanta, um, and you know, still just like struggle to make relationships, you know, or any kind of social connection, um, which like really fucking hits home. Um, when, you know, they, they have this very long conversation, slow moving, but long conversation at the diner, uh, then go back to Kevin's apartment and Chiron black admits that, uh, he hasn't been physically intimate with anyone since that night on the beach. Which just like yeah. fucking crushes when they were your like soul. Twelve years hear, old. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you hear that, and you're like, how could you, how could you not go crazy in all yeah. that time? Yeah, I mean, and it's, and it's not even from like a sexual standpoint. Like, just he's had no companionship for for you know fifteen to twenty years of his life. It's just it, it's just a horrible, uh, insane thing to to understand that, especially when you. You're, you're you're kind of shot forward so far into that character's life where you you know him as a kid and you know that he's a good kid that's had all these horrible uh circumstances thrust upon him and then you're like my god he's been by himself like he was you know chewed up and shat out by the system that you know didn't know how to protect him and you know he ended up in jail and what do you do when you get out of jail uh you fucking deal crack like what else are you gonna do like you know especially for a a black kid in miami you know in the 90s like what the fuck else is he gonna do like he's an ex-con he was put in he was treated like an adult uh and and treated like a prisoner by this school system for trying to survive like he literally had no chance um so but yeah so i mean and then that scene is just 
incredible. Um, you know, so he, he decides, you know, after, after talking with him to go, uh, on a whim and just drive to see him in, in Miami at this, at this little, uh, diner that, that Kevin's working at. And, you know, they go in and Kevin and him gets talking. And then you find out that Kevin is only working at this diner because he went to jail and he was really good. Uh, he was a good chef. And then, you know, he decided to stick with it. There's like, you know, kind of this, the skill set he had. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I, I love that scene in the diner with the two of them, like where he comes in and he's just like, you know, what, what you, what made you call me? Uh, and he's like, you know, I, I heard the song on the radio. It made me think of you. And he, and he, uh, he plays, uh, the Barbara Lewis song, uh, hello stranger, which I don't know if they actually play earlier in the, in the movie or if it's just something that like, you know, made him think of him. Um, I, I think it's just, it's probably the latter, but, uh, it was just an incredibly sweet and kind of tender moment of this, in this movie where it's just such a, viscerally brutal film you know and and there's no part of the last third of this film that you go oh this is gay like you don't have you like you never feel like it's a black movie even though it's only black people you never feel like oh this is like i don't remember like old video stores right like video whatever if they even had movies that involves uh homosexual romance at all it was in like a separate section it, yeah the lgbt film section yeah, yeah. Exactly. and i was always like what why is it even like that but it's it's almost like they were sort of conditioning people who were straight to think of it as like othering you know like this yeah. isn't this is not a film for you it's like gay people doing gay stuff and you're not going to want to watch that right so we put it over here in the separate section and you know you watch this as a straight person and there's no part of the movie where you're like i I feel uncomfortable. It also makes you feel like all this time that no movie that had any kind of, of homosexual romance would have made you feel uncomfortable, but you've been sort of conditioned to think it was going to make you feel uncomfortable. Because uh, well, it was so, otherized from the start. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you get to the end of this movie and it, it it's this very almost Italian neo-realistic feel where they're having this very slow moving, long conversation the way that people really do in real life, because they're, they're not going to just come out right and say what they really are thinking. Exactly. Yeah. You have to teasing it out. Like, so would you come all this way for, Hey, you know, what have you been doing? You know, have some of this wine, but it all plays just, it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect scene. You know, the last two scenes, it's conversation, extension of a conversation in two different locations. Well, and in the car a little bit too. Uh, and, you never feel uncomfortable watching this. You're just hoping that, you know, that they can have a real adult connection instead of just like sort of a, uh, you know, a, a fleeting and then somewhat hostile adolescent connection. And you're like, can these yeah. two people really share something meaningful? Because, you know, they clearly both want it, but one of them really fucking needs it. Because he's he's had nothing these last ten to fifteen years, yeah. And you imagine Kevin's probably the same way, although he's you know he had a, 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 a heterosexual relationship where he was probably trying to to hide who he was because it was so dangerous for him to be an out gay black guy and, and, sure. and you know and and that's a and he had a kid with the woman um, 
and that was like another kind of nice piece of dialogue where he's just like you know you still uh you guys still together like it, there was just a lot of a lot of just subtle you know unsaid um moments during that during that little end bit and you know we say a third but it really was it felt like it was only like 10 minutes of screen time that the, the the little end cap to this entire film uh, with adult Shire on the so last, it was, it was if, you, if you look at the runtime, if you look at the runtime of the last quote unquote third of the film, it's actually mm-hmm. almost half the film. That's actually wow. how slow it moves. Yeah, wow. it, go back and look at it. And uh, it's like two scenes. Like that's the incredible part about it is it's very yeah. like you, you're on the edge of your seat because it doesn't matter what your background is, your orientation is. You want to see this human connection. That's all you care mm-hmm. about. That's your emotional investment is just see. I want to see these people stop suffering. I want to see a human connection be made here to fix the awful shit we've, we've seen these people go through, both these characters. It makes you really wonder, like, if Hollywood weren't such a bunch of fucking cowards, like, in the 80s, if they could have really done a lot more to normalize uh, LGBT relationships and LGBT people because, like, you watch a movie like this and it never even occurs to you. And you're just like, you're like, you know, weeping at the end for this like beautiful, like kind of romance that they, that you want Chiron to end up happy at the end of this movie. And it's like, if they were to be, if they would have been putting like Hollywood weight behind these types of movies in the eighties and nineties, like it wouldn't have taken this long to get to where we they, are they today. Even make a movie about cancer in the eighties. Do you remember that? I forget the name of the movie, but it was like some groundbreaking film that dealt with somebody's uh-huh. like battle with cancer. Uh, they couldn't even do that. So, or well, they did well with AIDS. They did with Philadelphia. Like that was. I like was the just gonna fucking say that, dude. I was just gonna <laughs> say that. I, I rewatched Philadelphia um, a couple incredible uh, about a month ago, yeah. and you know, I believe it was 1993, uh, mm-hmm. and they were tackling AIDS and just homosexuality right like they could have mm-hmm. could have made a movie like, oh i got a blood, bad blood transfusion i have aids but it's not about gay stuff uh that that movie so just fucking kills me uh and i was kind of yeah. drunk when i watched it too so you know emotion whatever um but it's a really emotional movie yeah it's an incredible a, film amazing film how well it holds up because so many many movies from the early 90s just don't like the the music mm-hmm. and whatever just doesn't it's like yeah kind of whatever but I love oh, that dude. you know they they yeah. they put the bigotry front and center at the very beginning, you know, with Denzel's character, and he does such a great job of of you know you know his, his character is like oh it's just a case it's just a case just a case and it takes him so much time that like, his his whole character arc is to to even see his client as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the movie is trying to do too is is make you see that person as a human being make his fucking law firm partners even remotely realize that he was a human being uh and again with with moonlight it doesn't matter who you are you don't see you just see human beings that's all you think the whole movie whether it's his crackhead mother you know whether it's his is you know the surrogate crack dealer father whoever you are yeah. enriched in their humanity and you sympathize with every single one of them. There is no, I mean, aside from the bully who's just a fucking asshole, uh, yes. you, you care about everyone on that, on that screen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, Philadelphia too, it's almost kind of like a bizarro. They made it Philadelphia of- too. 
<laughs> it's um it's almost kind of like a bizarro kind of version of to kill a mockingbird where 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 the journey is more the the the, the lawyer's like journey rather than you know society's journey but um yeah and I, that that movie's uh tremendous and you know you talk about music not holding up that fucking bruce springsteen theme oh, for Philadelphia is one of the you greatest that, fucking i'm crying movies. in the first 10 seconds that oh, fucking song dude. comes on so good <sighs> so good chills fucking chill and it's one of my favorite springsteen songs like as a standalone song what's but the, um god i don't know if you can remember this but what's what's the song that plays at the end right when like the family's saying goodbye to him for the last time there's another song that plays i can't remember that's a good that's actually a really good soundtrack outside of just the sprint they did a, a lot of like reaching out to like big artists of the time to do um songs for that movie for that soundtrack and I, they almost went with a new i think it might have been the neil young song that they play at the end because that was a song he wrote for the movie also that they almost use as the main theme but then they didn't they oh yeah went. yep you're right I, I can't remember how it goes uh it was in my head the other day but yeah it's the neil young song oh god okay now it's in my head now it's, it's called philadelphia also yeah fuck yeah that that neil young song at the end just you can't not fucking weep I'm going to go listen to it as soon as we're done and I'm going to probably get to cry. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it really so, is just amazing. You know, obviously this film doesn't have a uh, terminal illness involved, but man, it still just breaks your fucking heart. Cause just the idea of somebody being that alone and unable to connect with other people, uh, it, 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 no matter who you are, just it's, it's like you, you want to do something. You want to change society in some way so nobody's got to be that alone again yeah and and it really ends on this this really hopeful note and you know you know who knows what's gonna and it didn't have the typical hollywood ending where you see like kind of a denouement or an epilogue it's just like um you know i think we as an audience assume and maybe hope that uh sharon and kevin will kind of uh stay together and or you know spend more time together and maybe, you know, uh, because Kevin's like, seems to be the only one that, that Chiron will open up to. Um, and you know, I thought it was, it was really a nice, subtle, uh, bit of symbolism when they were at the diner and he brings him the food and, you know, Chiron has to take his grill out to kind of eat and talk with him and like mm. have some wine with him. Cause it was like really, uh, it was a subtle symbolic way of him, you know, taking down his, taking off his armor, taking down his, you know, defenses and taking off the yeah. kind of layers yeah, of, of his tough persona to open up to this, this person who's the only other person he's ever opened up to in his entire life. Like, yeah, you know, you're, you're totally right. He's taking his armor off and as much as he can, you know, symbolically or visually in that yeah. scene. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about like the very last shot where, you know, they're, they're in his kitchen the second last shot and he admits that he hasn't mm-hmm. been intimate with anybody else in all the time uh since the the beachside hand job and the, you don't see them embrace like that's what you'd expect is like they're gonna he's gonna walk over and hug him or kiss him or whatever and they don't mm-hmm. show that it still shows them on either sides of that that you know small kitchen and then it just cuts to them laying down and you know just cuddling Right. And, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they shot a different ending or they just, you know, did different things, but you know, just, just that final shot and you're like, it doesn't matter what happens after this. We, we got enough as an audience emotionally to feel like there's, there's some kind of closure that, the, you know, Chiron's life is going to be better after this. 
in, in mm-hmm. whatever regard, or at least he, he learns how to make connections better. So that if this relationship doesn't last, he can more easily make other relationships in the future. But man, I mean that, that even that is, uh, um, it, it's a happier ending than La La Land. <laughs> To be honest. Oh yes, for sure. All <laughs> that so, really fucking bleak. The the ending of La La Land, you're just like, oh man, they're just gonna pull the rug out from under me, aren't they? <laughs> and yeah. they do, and you're like, oh, you fuckers, fucking and got me. It's even worse with the fucking spiritual successor to La La Land, which was a Star Is Born, which had an, an even bleaker ending, which I won't you know spoil for anyone that hasn't seen it. But fuck. Um, so, so in comparison, in terms of movies, you know, that recent best picture kind of contenders, this, this actually had a much more happy ending, uh, than, yeah. than a lot of these films, uh, Absolutely. much more hopeful ending. And then that last shot, which was obviously, you know, a really nice symbolic shot of, uh, where they cut back to young Chiron and his, he's being, you know, he's, he's reflecting the moonlight, uh, and he, you know, he, he has like almost an, a blue, kind of hue to him which i think was kind of a callback to the original uh title the play the title play. yeah yeah well and it's it's a weird sort of a callback because it's it's like they don't they don't reference the adolescent version of him only the child version it's almost like he's the the, the little is looking back on his own future in that shot mm-hmm. or at least it's implying which is you know time travel <laughs> uh <laughs> but yeah it was it was weird it was just it i wasn't really sure what to think about that shot that very final shot i i, I think there's meaning behind it to barry jenkins and i'm sure like he wouldn't divulge it because it's probably you know got a lot of personal meaning to it. but i'm sure there's meaning to be mind out of that out of that shot because it was obviously inserted very deliberately but i i, I really liked the artistic flourish at the end to just include that one last shot for sure and and, you know if nothing else it reads to me as uh you know if you could go back and tell yourself as a child what you know now you know if you could give yourself the knowledge that you have now to your baby self yeah what would you say yeah no for sure um and, you know, just uh, another, just kind of briefly as we're wrapping up here, I want to talk about uh, the music from the film because the orchestral score for this film uh, is a character in itself. And I think uh, the composer did an incredible job uh, putting this, That it, it's just a very interesting juxtaposition of like really soaring, beautiful classical music with like super heavy chopped and screwed hip hop. Like it's a really interesting um vibe that the that the that the film you know develops uh and and a lot of that is is thanks to uh nicholas Bertel's score um but a lot of the music the actual uh uh non non score music non score music that they use in the film uh does a lot of storytelling also you know like uh, uh, when he's driving uh as adult uh, Chiron as black, he's driving to see Kevin. He's listening to this Jidenna song, uh, called classic man. And it's a song that's incredibly, uh, it, it's a, it's a great song, but it's very like braggadocious. And it's very like, it, it's very much him. It's very much saying like, this is the image that he's trying to portray. This is who he's trying to show the world who he is. Not that he sees himself as that inside. He knows who he is inside, but yeah, that's, the, that's that's the face he's showing. And then, um, 
you know, he and then right after that, he meets Kevin in the diner, and Kevin puts on that Barbara Lewis song, Hello Stranger, and that's a song, you know, which kind of brings him back, back, back to center and like exposes him, uh, for the kind of, you know, lonely boy that he really is still inside. Like that's, that's the kind of unspoken lyrical, um, storytelling that they do with the, the those song choices. I mm-hmm. thought those were really nice, deliberate choices for the film. Well, one more little little uh, bit, you know, when you he's playing the song in his own car, when you're sort of seeing like here's this tough version of himself he's created, uh, you know, and he's picks up this guy and they're basically going to do a drug deal in this alleyway, uh, and his you know partner gets out of the car to go do the deal, and you see that like the, the, when he pulls this gun out from under the seat of the car and he kind of looks around, uh, it, it's like no one else can see that gun. Right. Like he's not pulling out to flash it to, to scare anybody. But the mm-hmm. look on his face when he looks around like he looks fucking scared. Right. Yeah. And it, it's something he's done numerous times. But it's it's like you, you still see like this, you know, very looks very vulnerable. Like he really yeah. does not feel comfortable in this role. So, you know, when Kevin says, you know, when he tells Kevin he got out of prison and went out and got put on the block. Uh, and Kevin's like, that's not who you are. And he's like, well, you don't know me. He's like, I know that's not who you are, though. <laughs> like, yeah, it's very like, like we yeah. we know that that's true. We know that Kevin knows that that's not who he is, uh, mm-hmm. even after all this time that he's uh, he's been there. So, you know, all, those little cues for the audience, even though there's no dialogue telling you uh, that when when you know another character says it and he denies it, we know that that is is not the truth that. Kevin does know exactly who he is. Uh, and despite all of his Kevin's character hiding who he is, he's able to see those things uh, in Chiron better than Chiron can see, or at least better than he's been able to hide it from other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, needless to say, we both, we both love the film. Uh, thought it was an incredible, uh, cinematic achievement especially considering you know how low the budget is and how kind of unknown a lot of the players were that were involved Um, so so when martin scorsese uh says you know marvel movies are more like an amusement park ride they're not cinema and you're like what the fuck does that mean like well this is an example of cinema yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so, this is definitely. If, if you got upset that Martin Scorsese said that, realize that Martin Scorsese has been making cinema his whole life, and uh, th- this movie Moonlight is absolutely, uh, you know, I, I would say better than a lot of Scorsese films, but it's it's definitely in that. Um, so yeah, definitely looking forward to everything else that uh, Barry Jenkins does in the future. Uh, master filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen his his newer movie of uh, Beale Street. If Beale Street can talk yet, but I'll I'll be checking that out for sure. Um, and Mahershala, Ali, I, I I love him as an actor, and I really want to uh, check out some of the other shit he's done. I haven't seen the new season of True Detective yet, which I I've been meaning to watch actually. Oh I, I God, really it's so good. He's so he's good at it, man. I tell you, like every time you hear a Southern accent on TV, it's not the way that people really talk in the South. Mm-hmm. His accent, I mean, his acting is phenomenal, but his accent alone in that movie is so like you almost need subtitles because he talks the way that people really talk in the South. It's well, such it's, a it's thick it's accent. Place in Louisiana, right? That season. 
I well, okay. Do you have like I, a I Creole kind of accent, or is it like it is in? I know the first season was Louisiana. I don't remember what mm-hmm. season that was. It may also be, but yeah, like he, you know, the, I'm sure he said like, "Look, I'm going to do a real Southern accent," and they were like, uh, "No one's going to be able to understand you." But okay, you get you, you're an Oscar <laughs> winner, so we're not going to tell you. We're not going to give you notes on the accent you're doing. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the, but he's that, incredible. That, yeah, no, he he's amazing. Um, anything he's in, I'll watch. Yeah, and he won. Uh, you know, best as we kind of mentioned briefly at the top of the show, he, he won best supporting actor uh, for his role as Juan, and he's barely in the movie, but he's, he's just so impactful in those those few scenes that he's in. Um, and you know, kind of quietly, I don't think people really noticed it at the time, but it, it kind of made the rounds the day after. He was the first Muslim uh, American to ever win a best acting or any kind of an acting Oscar. So that's pretty incredible. Um, you know, in yeah, and of well, itself. Barry Jenkins is only the fourth black director to win best picture. Like, yeah. yeah. And there's, there's been, uh, I, I, I don't even know years. if a female director's even won, but like there may have been one or two, like it's the, no, the Oscars it, are extremely white and extremely male for the entirety of their 86 yeah. years and of existence. He's the first first black director to have written an original screenplay to have won uh, a uh, Best Picture Oscar as well. So, yeah, just just a ton of firsts with this film. Uh, And and even if he didn't win anything. Black adapted screenplay winner the next year. Uh, Yeah, and even if if this won no Oscars, this film Mm -hmm. stands alone as uh, definitely the Best Picture that came out that year. And I love it because so often Oscars will pick like, you know, the they'll, they'll skip the best picture of that year. Case in point again, broke back mountain or when Fargo came out or when Pulp Fiction came out, they went with uh, uh Forrest Gump. It's like, yeah. what? come on. Like, or literally any what? movie other than crash in the year that crash won the best picture Oscar. Seriously. So they, like, they had this, this terrible habit of skipping the best director, best film, in its time, and then 20 years later giving that award to them for something lackluster. Oh, or like fucking Green Book last year, the fucking white savior fucking bullshit film that they, uh, like, just atrocious pick. So they're they're still not immune to it. They'll still go back to it. They just, every once in a while, will squeak through a good one, you know? Yeah. It just, I mean, and we already touched on this, but just just the fact that Moonlight won, not only won, but like got to take its Oscar out of the hands of La La Land was just oh, amazing. <laughs> for for once, the right thing happened, and the the true best film of the year fucking won. Um, you know, just like fucking, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, "There's no fucking way this movie's gonna win. This is just it's, yeah. it's too good for for fucking Hollywood to pick this." Well, they made up they made up for it the la- the two years after because the year after that they gave it to the 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 woman fucks a fish movie, and then the year after that they oh. gave it to Green Book. So, you know, it was like the real- one movie that nobody had seen either. They were like, "What? Fucking oh, fish fucking movie? I, I didn't even know that it existed." Yeah, yeah, I don't see that, and I'm not going over uh, movies like Dunkirk. You know, Call Me by Your Name, Get Out was nominated the year the fish fucking movie no. won the post. You you like, still need oof. to watch Get Out because Get Out Phantom is, Thread, which I know you love. Uh, Phantom Thread, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite writer director of all time. But Dunkirk is is you got to watch that man. Like you're gonna yeah, you're gonna I, I you're gonna fucking love real. it. I mean, 
is a very different film than any other Christopher, Christopher Nolan film. Um, but the way it, like all of his films play with time, obviously interstellar, uh, we've talked about some of this before, but it, people were so pissed off the way that it deals with time that they're like, Oh, the movie's fake. And it's like, what? Every movie's fake, but it's, it, it tells, you know, there's three different ticking clocks in this movie. You always talk about Alfred Hitchcock talks about the ticking clock to build tension. There's three different ones running at different speeds in Dunkirk. And, and when you see it, when you finally see it, you're gonna love it. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that about wraps it up for us, uh, with Moonlight. Uh, loved it. Highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Although, while you're listening, an hour and seven minutes you, into this uh, podcast, uh, what would you rate it out of a scale out of, of five? Hammer and Sickles. Uh, yeah, I'll give it a five. I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything that I disliked about this movie. I, I loved it. I thought it was a, a tremendous, uh, accomplishment, uh, especially considering how how low budget and how independent it was, you know, like it really um, a twenty four just fucking hits it out of the park. Killing, I, I, I love it. Yeah, a twenty four is just a great kind of you know art house cinema like little pr- uh, production uh, unit, and they are one of the only studios that give money to these little fucking interesting. Uh, you know, film like they do a lot of horror. They they did Hereditary. They're doing Lighthouse. They did Midsummer, but then they do movies like Moonlight. Um, I believe they were involved in Get Out. They they give money to these these uh, films that like don't get money anymore. Like Hollywood only gives money to uh, incredibly incredibly cheap films, which they won't even release, or they spend five hundred million dollars on a fucking Marvel movie, like you very rarely see like a high budget indie movie. That's just like a really great character study, you know, or, a, or a heist movie or, a well, there was Blade Runner 2049. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, but that, but that was not existing IP. Like they'll give money to existing IP. Oh, I know. I know. It's still, it's just people joke about how, uh, you know, Blade Runner 2049 was the first $300 million independent film <laughs> in history, <laughs> which it, yeah it, it kind of is which i i think is great because I, I love the movie yeah, it's sure. just that like they um no one went to go see it and it lost it it lost like probably two-thirds of the money it made but wow uh, again it's the same thing happened with the first blade runner and it took time before it became a cult classic Found so i think audience. it's you know yeah exactly um they should you know the it was really a problem of marketing if they'd put batista with the little reading glasses on the tip of his nose on the poster yeah. i think more people would have gone to see <laughs> absolutely well you know it, i was opposed to it because why do it 35 years later and then they did it and i was like holy shit they made a masterpiece and yeah we re- we reviewed that masterpiece if you go to our soundcloud page uh just, ago, you gotta you gotta yeah. don't even bother scrolling down just go to google and do a search for uh, uh movie left and then blade, blade runner 2049 because we do a deep dive on that um that that review i had to really fight for much more than this one <laughs> to get it done so yeah but we did it and it was good um but yeah, so uh, yeah, check out all of our previous movie left reviews. We've done a lot of uh, good reviews. If you're in the Halloween spirit, you can go check out our our review of Halloween one and two that we did last year. That's one of my favorite podcasts I think we've ever done. We talked yeah. for like 
three fucking hours about the Halloween franchise. It was great. Um, and I'm sure we're going to do something for Halloween this year. Uh, we'll also probably be doing uh, a review of El Camino unless it absolutely shits the bed, which I can't imagine it would. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah. we, we want to review some things when they're timely and relevant rather than three years later after they come out. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, no, it, you know, we're, we're two straight white guys. So it's like I, you know. There's a there's a bias there to want to like oh Breaking Bad new movie thing like of course we want to check that out but uh, you know we want to also do things like a queer black cinema too like Moonlight so if you've listened this far thank you very much uh, you, if you've seen Moonlight and liked it we know you're a uh, astute critic of film yeah absolutely um, so uh, if you want to help the show out rate review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts uh, follow us on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash move left follow us on facebook if you want to uh chat over there it's facebook.com slash move left idiots if you want to support the show you can uh do so by becoming a patron uh patreon.com slash move left or if you want to pick up any merch from our show you can go to tinyurl.com slash move left merch uh, we do our you know main political uh, podcast every week, every Thursday, typically every Thursday night. Uh, you can check that out where we talk about the news uh, of the week um, from, from a, a socialist perspective. perspective. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at move underscore left. And I'm on Twitter at smut collector with an ER, not an OR. Yep. We'll see you next time. Stranger, it seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? It seems like a mighty long time. It seems like a mighty long time.
Oh.